Now, we are turning to the preaching and reading of God's Word. We've been studying the book of Exodus for the past couple of weeks, if you haven't been with us. And we're at the part of the book where God has made a deal with the people of Israel called a covenant that they are going to live like his children, following the set of family values that he's given them called the law. And in turn, he will live with them. He will dwell with them as their God, protecting them, leading them, guiding them. And last week, last couple of weeks, what we've seen is that God invites the people to participate in building him a house called a tabernacle. And as we've seen, the directions that God gives are very specific. And in addition to that, they are communicating that God is building a replica of sorts of his heavenly home, his eternal throne room brought to earth. And the most important part of that being God himself will be present. He's going to dwell there physically with his people from among, above, excuse me, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Not all of the directions that God gives his people are just about decoration, how things should look. Some of them carry a very important message. We're going to look at some of those this morning. The passages that we're going to read from come from chapters 26, 27, and 30. We've skipped two chapters in there on purpose. Uh, Those two chapters deal with the priests and their role in worship at the tabernacle. We are going to look at that next week. Some of the items we're looking at are put after the priests because they're connected to the roles of the priest. Moses had a very important intention in the way he set it up. However, for our purposes, we are going to look at these elements of the tabernacle as if we were just people in Israel walking up to the tabernacle. What would you experience? How would you understand what is happening at the tabernacle? So as I read these passages... I'm going to tell you what verses I'm reading before I read them, but I want you to see if you can pick out the message that God is communicating through these elements. So we're going to start by looking at Exodus 27, verse 9. God said, You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Exodus 27, 16. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars with them, four bases. Exodus 26, verse 36, you shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And then Exodus 26, verses 31 and 33. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Oh God, as we come before you this morning to hear from you in your word, we acknowledge that it is hard for us sometimes to connect with it because it seems so distant to us. It seems oddly specific and in some cases dry. We do ask that you would send your spirit into our hearts this morning, that we might feel convicted by the spirit as we learn the truth of our own hearts, but also encouraged 
and enlivened by the reality of the gospel contained herein. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. I pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. When I was in third grade, my mom was the room parent for our class, which means that she helped out with a lot of the crafts and stuff that we did. She went on uh, field trips if we went on field trips. And one of the other responsibilities was to plan and throw the end of the year party. As the end of the year got closer, she would go shopping for party decorations and bring them to our house, but she would keep them a secret. She didn't want to ruin the surprise. She didn't want me to know the theme of the party. And so for what felt like weeks, there were these brown shopping bags in our house that contained this excitement for the end of the year party that I was not allowed to have access to. And finally, the last day of the year came, my mom showed up to our third grade class, shopping bags in hand, and Miss McElhaney, our teacher, dismissed all the students for recess so that they could set up for the party and we would be surprised when we came back in. All of the kids were fine with going and playing kickball or going to the monkey bars or whatever that they were doing, but not me. I had to know what was the theme of this party. I had been teased for weeks that I could have known but didn't, and so instead of going to the kickball field, I turned around the corner of the school, I walked down the side of the brick building until I came to the window for our third grade class. Now, this window was like floor to ceiling, basically. There was a cement step at the base of the window for some reason, and all the windows were covered in these metal storm shutters, right? In case there was a hurricane, this is Florida, they were able to close these storm shutters and protect the windows, but they were separated into two different shutters. So I climb up onto this cement ledge, and I know that I can open the top shutter while leaving the bottom shutter closed so that Anybody inside couldn't see my body, and they would barely see the top of my head so I could figure out the theme of the party without being seen. It was a brilliant plan. It was going perfectly until the wasps that had built a nest behind the storm shutter were disturbed. They came flying out. I was stung in the hand several times. I started crying, had to be taken to the school nurse, and I spent most of the party sitting on a chair in the front of the room with ice on my hand. Sometimes, when you're told to stay out, you should stay out. I believe the theme of the party was luau, if you were wondering. Whether it's so you don't ruin a surprise or for your own safety, when somebody tells you to stay out, they usually have a good reason in telling you that. Believe it or not, part of the construction of the tabernacle was purposefully built to tell Israel to stay out. They couldn't actually enter into this amazing, beautiful place. And perhaps, to our surprise, there isn't a lot of pushback. They don't get upset. They don't revolt. They don't not build the tabernacle in the way God tells them to. In chapters 35 through 38 of Exodus, they follow his precise instructions when they build it, including building these elements that communicate, stay out. And yet, At the same time, God prescribes three particular elements that say the exact opposite. Come closer. Stay out and come closer. Two points for us this morning. Now, even as I say that, some of you might be thinking, that does not make sense. 
those two things are opposite. It's counterintuitive to think that God would give two sets of opposing messages. That is correct. It is confusing. The main idea of that, though, is that there is tension here within the tabernacle. And the reason that it's there is because there is tension in all of life, tension everywhere in everything we encounter. And when you come to faith in Jesus, when you have an encounter with God, it doesn't just make everything simple and easy to understand. It doesn't just clear everything up. But God himself actually sheds light on the beauty of tension, the beauty of tension. And he makes it so that we understand he himself is the only resolution to that tension. We're going to talk about gospel tension this morning. Stay out and come closer. We're going to start by looking at the things that communicate to Israel, stay out. God had prescribed them to build this inner sanctuary, this holy place. It was beautiful, majestic, perhaps the most beautiful place that humans could go at this time. In this room, the holiest of holy places, surrounded by these beautiful blue and purple and red curtains that had these beautiful silver cherubim woven into it, it made you feel like you were simultaneously in outer space and in God's throne room with God himself. Right in front of you would have been this brilliant golden box with these two angels affixed to the top of it. And God had promised to meet with his people from between those two angels. Being there in that room would have felt like you were transported to another world, into the outermost reaches of the universe in God's presence. And yet, the design of the tabernacle, four features scream, stay out. First, we have this court of the tabernacle, basically just a courtyard. It was cordoned off with a screen that was about seven and a half feet tall, or what we would call a privacy fence. All the way around the courtyard, 150 feet on one side, 75 feet on the other, making a nice rectangle. And it wasn't just like open on one end. It wasn't like you could go around to the other side. You had to come to the eastern side of this privacy fence. And it had an opening that was covered by a screen. Seven and a half feet tall, but 30 feet wide. This curtain was blue and purple and red, and it was kept closed. Unless someone was to walk in, and then it was opened only to be shut again. A giant fence, and then a curtain. If you got through those two things, there was another curtain that prevented you from getting into the tabernacle, the tent itself. Similarly, blue and purple and red. Three things already. And then there was, between the first chamber of the tabernacle, which held the lampstand and the table, and the antechamber of the tabernacle, where the Ark of the Covenant was, a veil. A very thick veil that was blue and purple and red as well, but it had these cherubim woven into it, one step after the other. I'm going to change the <clears> mic <throat> real quick. All right, so four separate things communicating to Israel stay out. The privacy fence, 
the curtain that connected the fence to the actual courtyard, a curtain at the front of the tent, and then a curtain inside of the tent. And this last one was perhaps the most firm, the most final and powerful way of communicating to Israel, keep out. The, it, it was the one that had the cherubim woven into it, and it, it was a visible representation of another event that we've seen in the Bible. Earlier in Genesis chapter 3, you may remember that God created Adam and Eve to live in perfect harmony with each other and with Him in the garden, but they chose to disobey. They chose to eat of the tree He warned them not to, and in doing so, they were separated from God. And how were they separated exactly? Well, we know this in Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest they reach out their hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent them out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove them out, and at the east of the garden of Eden... He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. How do you get into the tabernacle? Through the gate in the east. And what stands between you and the Ark of the Covenant? Cherubim. Keep out. And in fact, that last veil has a unique word for it. That word is used only of the innermost curtain here and its counterpart that is put in the temple when it is eventually built in Jerusalem. That word is the same root for the verb cut off, closed off. Need God say more? The message to Israel is clear. Stay out. But to put it in more accessible words for us, I'll quote the great children's book, The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. Because of your sin, you can't come in. Because of your sin, you can't come in. This was terrible news. Here is God dwelling in His home among His people on earth, bringing His heavenly home to them, and yet, because of their sin, their inability and lack of desire to follow His law, they can't actually access Him. This isn't just a problem for Israel, though. This is a problem for each one of us. Because of our sin, we can't have access to God either. We are cast out because of our sin. Because of my sin, there are veils and curtains and fences set between me and God, and the same is true for you. The gospel tells us this. And I'm going to say this, and it might sound unfamiliar to you, but I want you to listen. The gospel is always bad news before it is good news. The gospel is always bad news before it is good news. It always starts with why you need to be rescued. It always starts with the death that your actions have incurred. It always starts with why you have to keep out. And the answer to all of those is you. Your actions, your sin. The gospel always starts with because of your sin, you can't come in. How does that make you feel? How do you respond to that terrible news? 
Last summer, our family went to the beach. One of our summer outings during COVID where we felt safe to be outside. And one of our traditions when we go to the beach out in Santa Cruz is stopping at Marianne's Ice Cream on the way back. It's hot day at the beach. Nothing beats Marianne's after one of those days. And so we were packing up, getting ready to go, and we told our girls we are going to get ice cream. However, if you disobey, if you whine and complain, or as Margaret is prone to do, if you run away, you will lose your ice cream. Unfortunately, Margaret chose to run away Uh, Nicole had to run down the beach, caught her. She's throwing a temper tantrum, kicking and screaming in Nicole's arms. And Nicole says, Margaret, you disobeyed. You've lost your ice cream. We finally get to the car, pack everybody in. We're on our way. We get into the the parking lot there in Marianne's, and Nicole and I are looking at each other like, who's going to go get the ice cream, and who's going to stay and deal with Margaret's wrath when we enforce this punishment? I volunteered as tribute, and so Nicole got out of the car, got Michaela out from the back seat, and she looked at Margaret, and she said, Margaret, because you disobeyed, Mommy and Sissy are going to go get ice cream. We're going to bring Daddy some, but you don't get any this time. And without turning her head and looking at Nicole, without blinking, with ice water running through her veins, Margaret said, I don't care. I'll get some next time. Yeah. I do wonder, though, if that's how your heart responds when you're told that it is because of your sin that you can't have access to God. Or maybe it's a little more subtle than that. Instead of, I don't care, I wonder if we just have kind of settled into the reality that, yeah, we're sinners. And so hearing that just kind of pushes past you like wind. I think there's two reasons, really, that we are not shocked and appalled that we have caused separation with God. And I think the first one is we don't actually think we're that bad, or at least we're strong enough and good enough to make up for it, right? We're used to this idea of achieving, of fixing things, of figuring out how we can get better. And so if we hear that we've caused a problem, we've broken our relationship with God, it just kind of fits into this category of things we got to figure out how to move on from. Right? If something breaks in my house, my first response is not to drop to my knees and say, oh my goodness, woe is me. It's to find a YouTube video and figure out how to fix that thing. Have you gotten to the point where your ability to work hard, to achieve, has just become part of who you are? And so hearing that you have caused a problem just doesn't seem like it's that bad. Like you haven't actually done something that is irreversible. I think the second reason is pretty accurate for me, and I think far more devastating when we realize it. The second reason why I think we're not shocked and appalled is because having access to God doesn't actually seem that desirable to us. It doesn't seem like uh, it's that powerful, right? Like we enjoy the benefits of being with God, of being in the community especially, We like the idea of coming to church and singing. We like the idea of having people we're connected to in a way that is deeper than family. We like knowing that we we feel good knowing that we are connected to this cosmic entity so that if something goes wrong, we can appeal to Him. But the reality is having access to God just kind of fits with all of the other great things that we've got. I see this deeply in my own life in that having access to God feels like another good thing 
and a host of good things. Having access to God sounds great, but have you ever stood on the top of Half Dome? Having access to God seems like it would be life-changing, but I'm really looking for eight hours of sleep. There are all these things that we have that we're longing for that seem to be on equal footing with having access to God. And so, realizing that we've done something to lose that, it's just not that big a deal. That's hard. Losing access to God is terrible, terrible news. We have a reminder of it every week in our service, during our time of confession. We're not only saying, God, we've messed up and we've messed up our relationships with other people, but ultimately at the deepest level, what we are saying when we confess our sin corporately is, God, I am the one who has broken relationship with you. I am acknowledging that because of my own sin, I can't come in. Do we take that seriously? The privacy fence, the curtains, all shouted to Israel, stay out. And yet God also was communicating, come closer, come closer. You know, when when you hear this idea that you don't have access to something amazing because of your own sin, my thought is there's probably two things going through your mind. That's not true of God, right? God, a good God, would never keep something good from me. He would never prevent me from going somewhere that I wanted, right? That's just the Old Testament God. That's not who this God of today really is. Or maybe you're feeling more along the lines of, yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds like the God that I know, that I've experienced. There is this good life out there, these solid relationships this good family, this good job, a secure housing situation, all that stuff's out there, but they're just out of reach. God doesn't want to walk me into that level of goodness. And that's not true. We need to see these other three elements of the tabernacle where God is consistently calling Israel in closer, come closer, come closer, despite their sin. God wants His people in His presence. He draws us inward. He draws us closer. And it actually takes a lot for us to be there. Let's start by looking at Exodus 27, verse 1, and then 3 to 4. God says, You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all of its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. This is the first thing that you would see if you passed through the outer curtain to come into the courtyard. It was this giant bronze altar. It was constantly burning. There were animals being sacrificed every single day. That was, for all intents and purposes, the price of admission. You could not walk into the tabernacle without seeing blood. In order for Israel to come closer, somebody had to pay the penalty of sin, which, as God said earlier when He gave them the law, was death. The sacrifices had to be made 
for the atonement of Israel's sin. Something had to cover them in order to let them be in God's presence, just in the courtyard even, for a little bit. And then further into the courtyard, we see this in Exodus 30, verses 17 through 21. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons, who were the priests, shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn food on the offering, or the food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. So halfway between this altar covered in blood and burning consistently was this uh, basin, just a giant basin full of water, and that was for the priests to wash themselves in. These were the men who were responsible for bringing Israel to God in worship. They were responsible for offering the sacrifices, for making Israel ritually clean, and they themselves were unclean. They had to come and they had to wash every time they went in, every time they came out, Every time they went near the altar, every time they went away from the altar, they had to wash their hands and feet. And it wasn't just for fun. God didn't say this just for sanitary purposes. He said, so they may not die twice. This was a big deal. They themselves were sinful and couldn't come in unless God saw them as clean. One more thing God commanded, Exodus 30, verse 1 and then 6 through 8. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood, and you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. So this was another altar consistently burning, but it was only to be used for incense, smoke and smell filling the tabernacle. And Aaron is supposed to put the incense on the offering in the morning when he goes in to light the lamps on the, um, the menorah that's in there, and then in the evening when he goes to trim them so that they'll last throughout the night, he is supposed to offer incense. Now, the exact purpose of the incense is rather ambiguous in this part of Exodus, However, later in the history of Israel, what we see is that incense is connected with prayer. So, incense is to be offered in the morning and in the evening. We see Israel command the Levites later when they get into Jerusalem to pray as the incense is being offered. And even in the second temple, when Jesus' birth is announced to Zechariah, his uncle, he is filling the prayer, uh, the, excuse me, the altar of incense and praying because prayer and incense go together. So, prayer in the morning and the evening, incense in the morning and the evening, washing when you go in, when you come out, when you go near the altar, when you come away from the altar, blood spilled and animals burned every single day. Lots of things had to be done in order for Israel to be with God. And God says, do this regularly because I want you with me. So much has to be done, and yet all of that pales 
in comparison to what was actually done so that we could really be with God. God himself had to suffer and to die. Uh, there's this graph or chart that I, I like to talk about a lot that I think gives this uh, a great picture for us. If you've ever been to our Intro to Grace class, it's on one of our papers that we go through. There's a line, and it represents your life, and it comes to a point where it intersects with the cross, which is where Jesus died, and it symbolizes when you become a Christian, when you come to faith. And after that cross, the line separates in two. The line goes up, at a, at a steep angle, and then the line goes down at a steep angle, right? So it looks like a, a mouth, right? A greater than symbol if you are into math. The top line says God's holiness. The bottom line says your sin, right? And the, what the chart is communicating is that when you come to faith in Jesus, you start to learn what is really true of God, how holy He actually is, how perfect He actually is, how amazing and powerful and almighty He actually is, and there is no end to your understanding of all of that. And at the same time, you begin to understand what is true of who you are, how sinful you actually are. It doesn't mean you get more sinful, it means you understand the depth of your sin, and the Bible tells us there is no end to the depth of your sin. And so the, the further you walk with Jesus, the bigger that separation is. Now, that separation is your understanding of how far you are from God, how big that keep out sign actually is. And at the same time, you know for sure that Jesus' death on the cross connects you, unites you to God, mends that divide, breaks that keep out sign. And so the more you understand your sin, the more you understand God's holiness, the bigger you see the cross to be. The more you understand what Jesus really did for us. Because Jesus, who is God, became man. He took on flesh, and He lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. He was not connected and communicating with God once in the morning and once in the evening, but all day every day, communing with his heavenly Father. He was a perfectly clean priest, and yet he died the death that we deserved to die, our sacrifice, not every single day, but once for all. That's how perfect his sacrifice is for us. And he rose again from the dead so that anyone who has been marked in, in Jesus by baptism has been cleansed by his blood, has direct access to God. Not just out there, but in here. God himself dwells in you through his spirit. No more screens, no more veils. The spirit of God dwells in you and unites you in body and soul to Christ. This is the way that the gospel accounts, this is why the gospel accounts record the fact that as Jesus hung on the cross, when he cried out in a loud voice and offered up his spirit, breathing his last, the veil of the temple, blue and purple and red with all of these cherubim embroidered on it, a giant keep out sign was torn in half from top to bottom, right? The tune has been changed from keep out to come closer, further in, and further up. In 2010, a 22-year-old man named Ricky Whelan died tragically in a car accident. 
He was uh, an Ohio National Guardsman. He was studying to become uh, an auto mechanic, and his parents, Richard and Debbie, uh, explained at his funeral that he was always committed to helping others. Claude Brown and his wife Molly knew that and know that to be true about Ricky. In 2010, Claude suffered congenital heart failure. And because Ricky had been an organ donor, Claude received Ricky's heart. He was able to live on and saw one of his children get married, three more grandchildren born. And on April 11, 2015, the Browns got to meet the Whelans. And as the Whelans were listening to their son's heart with a stethoscope, tears pouring down Claude's face, He said, I don't even know what to say. Thank you doesn't seem to be enough. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive in Christ. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Every part of it, that because of your trespasses, you were dead. That because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, you are alive. And the only reason that God chose to do that for us is because of His great love and mercy for us. Saying thank you doesn't seem like enough but it's a pretty good place to start. So let's pray. God, we come before you thankful. We are thankful for your graciousness, for your love for us, for your Son who came and lived and died and rose again so that we too might have life. God, we ask that you would send your Spirit to us. Help us to see the truth of our brokenness the reality of the death that we deserve, and at the same time to see Jesus take that from us. Help us to be more appalled by our sin and more amazed by grace. Help us to be reminded that you have changed everything for us from death to life, from darkness to life. God, we ask that you would change us in the process. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.